Chapter 8, Part 1 of Sentimental Education by Gustave Flaubert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Frederick Entertains Frederick found a little mansion at the corner of the Rue Renfort, and he bought it along with the broom, the horse, the furniture, and two flower stands which were taken from the Arnoux's house to be placed on each side of his drawing-room door. In the rear of this apartment were a bedroom and a closet. The idea occurred to his mind to put up de Laurier there, but how could he receive her, her, his future mistress? The presence of a friend would be an obstacle. He knocked down the partition wall in order to enlarge the drawing-room, and converted the closet into a smoking-room. He bought the works of the poets whom he loved, books of travel, atlases, and dictionaries, for he had innumerable plans of study. He hurried on the workmen, rushed about to the different shops, and in his impatience to enjoy, carried off everything without even holding out for a bargain beforehand. From the tradesman's bills, Frederick ascertained that he would have to expend very soon 40,000 francs, not including the succession duties, which would exceed 37,000. As his fortune was in landed property, he wrote to the notary at Havre to sell a portion of it in order to pay off his debts, and to have some money at his disposal. Then, anxious to become acquainted at last with that vague entity, glittering and indefinable, which is known as society, he sent a note to the Dambreuse to know whether he might be at liberty to call upon them. Madame, in reply, said she would expect a visit from him the following day. This happened to be their reception day. Carriages were standing in the courtyard. Two footmen rushed forward under the marquis, and a third at the head of the stairs began walking in front of him. He was conducted through an ante-room, a second room, and then a drawing-room, with high windows and a monumental mantel-shelf supporting a timepiece in the form of a sphere, and two enormous porcelain vases, in each of which bristled, like a golden bush, a cluster of sconces. Pictures in the manner of Espagnolet hung on the walls. The heavy tapestry portiere fell majestically, and the armchairs, the brackets, the tables, the entire furniture— which was in the style of the Second Empire, had a certain imposing and diplomatic air. Frederick smiled with pleasure in spite of himself. At last he reached an oval apartment, wainscoted in cypress wood, stuffed with dainty furniture, and letting in the light through a single sheet of plate glass, which looked out on a garden. Madame d'Ambreuse was seated at the fireside, with a dozen persons gathered round her in a circle. With a polite greeting, she made a sign to him to take a seat, without, however, exhibiting any surprise at not having seen him for so long a time. Just at the moment when he was entering the room, they had been praising the eloquence of the Abbé Coeur. Then they deplored the immortality of servants, a topic suggested by a theft which a valet de chambre had committed, and they began to indulge in tittle-tattle. Old Madame de Sommery had a cold, Mademoiselle de Turvisson had got married, the Montcharon would not return before the end of January. Neither would the Bretancourt, now that people remained in the country till a late period of the year. And the triviality of the conversation was, so to speak, intensified by the luxuriousness of the surroundings. But what they said was less stupid than their way of talking, which was aimless, disconnected, and utterly devoid of animation. And yet there were present men versed in life. An ex-minister, the curé of a large parish, two or three government officials of high rank. They adhered to the most hackneyed commonplaces. 
Some of them resembled wary dowagers, others had the appearance of horse jockeys, and old men accompanied their wives, of whom they were old enough to be grandfathers. Madame d'Ambreuse received all of them graciously. When it was mentioned that anyone was ill, she knitted her brows with a painful expression on her face, and when balls or evening parties were discussed, assumed a joyous air. She would ere long be compelled to deprive herself of these pleasures, for she was going to take away from a boarding school a niece of her husband, an orphan. The guests extolled her devotedness. This was behaving like a true mother of a family. Frederick gazed at her attentively. The dull skin of her face looked as if it had been stretched out, and had a bloom in which there was no brilliancy, like that of preserved fruit. But her hair, which was in corkscrew curls, after the English fashion, was finer than silk, her eyes of a sparkling blue, and all her movements were dainty. Seated at the lower end of the apartment, on a small sofa, she kept brushing off the red flock from a Japanese screen, no doubt in order to let her hands be seen to greater advantage. Long, narrow hands, a little thin, with fingers tilting up at the points. She wore a grey moiré gown, with a high-necked body, like a Puritan lady. Frederick asked her whether she intended to go to La Fortelle this year. Madame Tamreuse was unable to say. He was sure, however, of one thing, that one would be bored to death in Nogent. Then the visitors thronged in more quickly. There was an incessant rustling of robes on the carpet. Ladies, seated on the edges of chairs, gave vent to little sneering laughs, articulated two or three words, and at the end of five minutes left along with their young daughters. It soon became impossible to follow the conversation, and Frederick withdrew when Madame d'Abreuse said to him, Every Wednesday, is it not, Monsieur Moreau? Making up for her previous display of indifference by these simple words. He was satisfied. Nevertheless, he took a deep breath when he got out into the open air, and, needing a less artificial environment, Frederick recalled to mind that he owed the maréchal a visit. The door of the anteroom was open. Two Havanese lapdogs rushed forward. A voice exclaimed, Delphine, Delphine, is that you, Felix? He stood there without advancing a step. The two little dogs kept yelping continually. At length, Rosanette appeared, wrapped up in a sort of dressing gown of white muslin, trimmed with lace, and with her stockingless feet in Turkish slippers. Ah, excuse me, monsieur. I thought it was the hairdresser. One minute, I am coming back. And he was left alone in the dining room. The Venetian blinds were closed. Frederick, as he cast a glance round, was beginning to recall the hubbub of the other night, when he noticed on the table in the middle of the room a man's hat, an old felt hat, bruised, greasy, dirty. To whom did this hat belong? Impudently displaying its torn lining, it seemed to say, I have the laugh, after all, I am the master. The maréchal suddenly reappeared on the scene. She took up the hat opened the conservatory, flung it in there, shut the door again, other doors flew open and closed again at the same moment, and having brought Frederick through the kitchen, she introduced him into her dressing room. It could at once be seen that this was the most frequented room in the house, and, so to speak, its true moral centre. The walls, the armchairs, and a big divan with a spring were adorned with a chintz pattern on which was traced a great deal of foliage. On a white marble table stood two large wash-hand basins of fine blue earthenware. Crystal shelves, forming a whatnot overhead, were laden with files, brushes, combs, sticks of cosmetic, and powder boxes. 
The fire was reflected in a high cheval glass. A sheet was hanging outside a bath, and odours of almond paste and of benzoin were exhaled. You'll excuse the disorder. I'm dining in the city this evening. And as she turned on her heel, she was near crushing one of the little dogs. Frederick declared that they were charming. She lifted up the pair of them, and raising their black snouts up to her face, Come, do a laugh, kiss the gentleman. A man dressed in a dirty overcoat with a fur collar here entered abruptly. Felix, my worthy fellow, said she, you'll have that business of yours disposed of next Sunday without fail. The man proceeded to dress her hair. Frederick told her he had heard news of her friends, Madame de Rochegun, Madame de Saint-Florentin, and Madame Lombard, every woman being noble, as if it were at the mansion of the Dambreuse. Then he talked about the theatres. An extraordinary performance was to be given that evening at the Ambigu. Shall you go? Faith, no, I'm staying at home. Delphine appeared. Her mistress gave her a scolding for having gone out without permission. The other vowed that she was just returning from market. Well, bring me your book. You have no objection, isn't that so? And, reading the passbook in a low tone, Rosanette made remarks on every item. The different sums were not added up correctly. Hand me over four sous. Delphine handed the amount over to her, and when she had sent the maid away, Ah, holy virgin, could I be more unfortunate than I am with these creatures? Frederick was shocked at this complaint about servants. It recalled the others too vividly to his mind, and established between the two houses a kind of vexatious equality. When Delphine came back again, she drew close to the maréchale's side in order to whisper something in her ear. Ah, no, I don't want her. Delphine presented herself once more. Madame, she insists. Ah, oh, what a plague! Throw her out! At the same moment, an old lady dressed in black pushed forward the door. Frederick heard nothing, saw nothing. Rosanette rushed into her apartment to meet her. When she reappeared, her cheeks were flushed, and she sat down in one of the armchairs without saying a word. A tear fell down her face, then, turning towards the young man, softly, what is your Christian name? Frederick. Ah, Federico. It doesn't annoy you when I address you in that way. And she gazed at him in a coaxing sort of way that was almost amorous. All of a sudden she uttered an exclamation of delight at the sight of Mademoiselle Vatnas. The lady artist had no time to lose before presiding at her table d'hôte at six o'clock sharp, and she was panting for breath, being completely exhausted. She first took out of her pocket a gold chain in a paper, then various objects that she had bought. You should know that there are in the Rue Joubert splendid suede gloves at thirty-six sous. Your dyer wants eight days more. As for the guipure, I told you that they would dye it again. Bougnot has got the installment you paid. That's all, I think. You owe me a hundred and eighty-five francs. Rosanette went to the drawer to get ten napoleons. Neither of the pair had any money. Frederick offered some. I'll pay you back, said the Vatnas, as she stuffed the fifteen francs into her handbag. But you are a naughty boy. I don't love you any longer. You didn't get me to dance with you even once the other evening. Ah, my dear, I came across a case of stuffed hummingbirds, which are perfect loves at a shop in the Quai Voltaire. If I were in your place, I would make myself a present of them. Look here, what do you think of it? and she exhibited an old remnant of pink silk which she had purchased at the temple to make a medieval doublet for Delmar. He came today, didn't he? No. That's singular. And after a minute's silence, where are you going this evening? 
to Alphonsine's, said Rosanette, this being the third version given by her as to the way in which she was going to pass the evening. Mademoiselle Vatnas went on. And what news about the old man of the mountain? But with an abrupt wink, the maréchale bade her hold her tongue, and she accompanied Frederick out as far as the anteroom to ascertain from him whether he would soon see Arnoux. Pray, ask him to come, not before his wife, mind. At the top of the stairs, an umbrella was placed against the wall near a pair of galoshes. Vatnas's galoshes, said Rosanette. What a foot, eh? My little friend is rather strongly built. And, in a melodramatic tone, making the final letter of the word roll. Don't trust her. Frederick, emboldened by a confidence of this sort, tried to kiss her on the neck. Oh, do it. It costs nothing. He felt rather light-hearted as he left her, having no doubt that ere long the maréchale would be his mistress. This desire awakened another in him, and, in spite of the species of grudge that he owed her, he felt a longing to see Madame Arnoux. Besides, he would have to call at her house in order to execute the commission with which he had been entrusted by Rosanette. But now, thought he, it had just struck six, Arnoux is probably at home. So he put off his visits till the following day. She was seated in the same attitude as on the former day, and was sewing a little boy's shirt. The child, at her feet, was playing with a wooden toy menagerie. Marthe, a short distance away, was writing. He began by complimenting her on her children. She replied without any exaggeration of the maternal silliness. The room had a tranquil aspect. A glow of sunshine stole in through the window panes, lighting up the angles of the different articles of furniture, and, as Madame Arnoux sat close beside the window, a large ray, falling on the curls over the nape of her neck, penetrated with liquid gold her skin, which assumed the colour of amber. Then he said, This young lady here has grown very tall during the past three years. Do you remember, mademoiselle, when you slept on my knees in the carriage? Marthe did not remember. One evening, returning from Saint-Claude? There was a look of peculiar sadness in Madame Arnoux's face. Was it in order to prevent an allusion on his part to the memories they possessed in common? Her beautiful black eyes, whose chlorotics were glistening, moved gently under their somewhat drooping lids, and her pupils revealed in their depths an inexpressible kindness of heart. He was seized with a love stronger than ever, a passion that knew no bounds. It enervated him to contemplate the object of his attachment. However, he shook off this feeling. How was he to make the most of himself? By what means? And having turned the matter over thoroughly in his mind, Frederick could think of none that seemed more effectual than money. He began talking about the weather, which was less cold than it had been at Havre. You have been there? Yes, about a family matter, an inheritance. Ah, I am very glad, she said, with an air of such genuine pleasure that he felt quite touched just as if she had rendered him a great service. She asked him what he intended to do, as it was necessary for a man to occupy himself with something. He recalled to mind his false position, and said that he hoped to reach the Council of State with the help of Monsieur d'Ambreuse, the secretary. You are acquainted with him, perhaps? Merely by name. Then, in a low tone, He brought you to the ball the other night, did he not? Frederick remained silent. That was what I wanted to know. Thanks. After that, she put two or three discreet questions to him about his family and the part of the country in which he lived. 
it was very kind of him not to have forgotten them after having lived so long away from paris but could i do so he rejoined have you any doubt about it madame arnaud arose i believe that you entertain toward us a true and solid affection au revoir and she extended her hand towards him in a sincere and virile fashion was this not an engagement a promise frederick felt a sense of delight at merely living he had to restrain himself to keep from singing he wanted to burst out to do generous deeds and to give alms he looked around him to see if there were any one near whom he could relieve no wretch happened to be passing by and his desire for self-devotion evaporated for he was not a man to go out of his way to find opportunities for benevolence then he remembered his friends the first of whom he thought was Ouzonnet, the second pellerin the lowly position of Dusardier naturally called for consideration as for cici he was glad to let that young aristocrat get a slight glimpse as to the extent of his fortune he wrote accordingly to all four to come to a housewarming the following sunday at eleven o'clock sharp and he told the laurier to bring senecal the tutor had been dismissed from the third boarding-school in which he had been employed for not having given his consent to the distribution of prizes a custom which he looked upon as dangerous to equality he was now with an engine builder and for the past six months had been no longer living with de laurier there had been nothing painful about their parting senecal had been visited by men in blouses all patriots all workmen all honest fellows but at the same time men whose society seemed distasteful to the advocate besides he disliked certain ideas of his friend excellent though they might be as weapons of warfare he held his tongue on the subject through motives of ambition deeming it prudent to pay deference to him in order to exercise control over him for he looked forward impatiently to a revolutionary movement in which he calculated on making an opening for himself and occupying a prominent position senecal's convictions were more disinterested every evening when his work was finished he returned to his garret and sought in books for something that might justify his dreams he had annotated the contrat social he had crammed himself with the revue indépendant he was acquainted with mably morelli fourier saint-simon comte cabet louis blanc the heavy cartload of socialistic writers those who claim for humanity the dead level of barracks those who would like to amuse it in a brothel or to bend it over a counter and from a medley of all these things he constructed an ideal of virtuous democracy with the double aspect of a farm in which the landlord was to receive a share of the produce and a spinning mill a sort of american lacedaemon in which the individual would only exist for the benefit of society which was to be more omnipotent absolute infallible and divine than the grand lama and the nebuchadnezzars he had no doubt as to the approaching realization of this ideal and senecal raged against everything that he considered hostile to it with the reasoning of a geometrician and the zeal of an inquisitor titles of nobility crosses plumes liveries above all and even reputations that were too loud sounding scandalized him his studies as well as his sufferings intensifying every day his essential hatred of every kind of distinction and every form of social superiority what do i owe to this gentleman that i should be polite to him if he wants me he can come to me de laurier however forced him to go to frederick's reunion they found their friend in his bedroom 
spring roller blinds and double curtains, Venetian mirrors, nothing was wanting there. Frederick, in a velvet vest, was lying back on an easy chair, smoking cigarettes of Turkish tobacco. Senecal wore the gloomy look of a bigot arriving in the midst of a pleasure party. Delaurier gave him a single comprehensive glance, then, with a very low bow, Monseigneur, allow me to pay my respects to you. Dusardier leaped on his neck. So you are a rich man now. Ah, upon my soul, so much the better. Cici made his appearance with crepe on his hat. Since the death of his grandmother, he was in the enjoyment of a considerable fortune, and was less bent on amusing himself than on being distinguished from others, not being the same as everyone else, in short, on having the proper stamp. This was his favourite phrase. However, it was now midday, and they were all yawning. Frederick was waiting for someone. At the mention of Arnoux's name, Pellerin made a wry face. He looked on him as a renegade since he had abandoned the fine arts. Suppose we pass over him. What do you say to that? They all approved of this suggestion. The door was opened by a manservant in long gaiters, and the dining room could be seen with its lofty oak plinths, relieved with gold, and its two sideboards laden with plate. The bottles of wine were heating on the stove, the blades of new knives were glittering beside oysters. In the milky tint of the enameled glasses there was a kind of alluring sweetness, and the table disappeared from view under its load of game, fruit, and meats of the rarest quality. These attentions were lost on Senecal. He began by asking for household bread, the hardest that could be got, and in connection with this subject spoke of the murders of Bouzancé and the crisis arising from lack of the means of subsistence. Nothing of this sort could have happened if agriculture had been better protected, if everything had not been given up to competition, to anarchy, and to the deplorable maxim of let things alone, let things go their own way. It was in this way that the feudalism of money was established, the worst form of feudalism. But let them take care. The people in the end will get tired of it, and may make the capitalist pay for their sufferings, either by bloody prescriptions or by the plunder of their houses. Frederick saw, as if by a lightning flash, a flood of men with bare arms invading Madame d'Ambreuse's drawing-room and smashing the mirrors with blows of pikes. Senecal went on to say that the workman, owing to the insufficiency of wages, was more unfortunate than the helot, the negro, and the pariah, especially if he has children. Ought he to get rid of them by asphyxia, as some English doctor whose name I don't remember, a disciple of Malthus, advises him? And turning towards Sisi, are we to be obliged to follow the advice of the infamous Malthus? Sisi, who was ignorant of the infamy and even of the existence of Malthus, said by way of reply that after all, much human misery was relieved, and that the higher classes, ha, the higher classes, said the socialist with a sneer. In the first place, there are no higher classes. Tis the heart alone that makes any one higher than another. We want no alms, understand, but equality, the fair division of products. What he required was that the workman might become a capitalist, just as the soldier might become a colonel. The trade wardenships, at least, in limiting the number of apprentices, prevented workmen from growing inconveniently numerous and the sentiment of fraternity was kept up by means of the fetes and the banners. Bouzonnet, as a poet, regretted the banners. So did Pellerin, too, a predilection which had taken possession of him at the Café d'Agnon, 
while listening to the Phalansterians talking, he expressed the opinion that Fourier was a great man. Come now, said the Laurier, an old fool who sees in the overthrow of governments the effects of divine vengeance. He is just like my lord Saint-Simon and his church, with his hatred of the French Revolution, a set of buffoons who would fain re-establish Catholicism. Monsieur de Sissi, no doubt in order to get information or to make a good impression, broke in with this remark, which he uttered in a mild tone. These two men of science are not, then, of the same way of thinking as Voltaire? That fellow! I make you a present of him. How is that? Why, I thought, oh no, he did not love the people. Then the conversation came down to contemporary events, the Spanish marriages, the dilapidations of Rochefort, the new chapter-house of Saint-Denis, which had led to the taxes being doubled. Nevertheless, according to Senegal, they were not high enough. And why are they paid? My God, to erect the palace for apes at the museum, to make showy staff officers parade along our squares, or to maintain a gothic etiquette amongst the flunkies of the chateau. I have read in the mode, said Sissi, that at the Tuileries Ball, on the feast of Saint-Ferdinand, every one was disguised as a miser how pitiable said the socialist with a shrug of his shoulders as if to indicate his disgust and the museum of versailles exclaimed pellerin let us talk about it these idiots have foreshortened a delacroix and lengthened a gros at the louvre they have so well restored scratched and made a jumble of all the canvases that in ten years probably not one will be left as for the errors in the catalogue, a German has written a whole volume on the subject. Upon my word, the foreigners are laughing at us. Yes, we are the laughing-stock of Europe, said Senecal. Tis because art is conveyed in fee simple to the crown. As long as you haven't universal suffrage, allow me, for the artist, having been rejected at every salon for the last twenty years, was filled with rage against power. Ah, let them not bother us. As for me, I ask for nothing. Only the chambers ought to pass enactments in the interests of art. A chair of aesthetics should be established with a professor who, being a practical man as well as a philosopher, would succeed, I hope, in grouping the multitude. You would do well, Uzonne, to touch on this matter with a word or two in your newspaper. Are the newspapers free? Are we ourselves free? said the Laurier in an angry tone. When one reflects that there might be as many as twenty-eight different formalities to set up a boat on the river, it makes me feel a longing to go and live amongst the cannibals. The government is eating us up. Everything belongs to it. Philosophy, law, the arts, the very air of heaven. And France, bereft of all energy, lies under the boot of the gendarme and the cassock of the devil-dodger with the death-rattle in her throat. The future Mirabeau thus poured out his bile in abundance. Finally, he took his glass in his right hand, raised it, and with his other arm akimbo, and his eyes flashing, I drink to the utter destruction of the existing order of things, that is to say, of everything included in the words privilege, monopoly, regulation, hierarchy, authority, state, and in a louder voice, which I would like to smash as I do this, dashing on the table the beautiful wine glass which broke into a thousand pieces. They all applauded and especially Dusardier. The spectacle of injustices made his heart leap up with indignation. Everything that wore a beard claimed his sympathy. He was one of those persons who fling themselves under vehicles to relieve the horses who have fallen. His erudition was limited to two works, 
one entitled Crimes of Kings, and the other Mysteries of the Vatican. He had listened to the advocate with open-mouthed delight, at length unable to stand it any longer. For my part, the thing I blame Louis-Philippe for is abandoning the Poles. One moment, said Ouzonnet. In the first place, Poland has no existence. Tis an invention of Lafayette. The Poles, as a general rule, all belong to the Faubourg Saint-Marceau, the real ones having been drowned in Poniatowski. In short, he no longer gave in to it. He had got over all that sort of thing. It was just like the sea serpent, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes and that antiquated humbug about the saint Bartholomew massacre. Senegal, while he did not defend the Poles, extolled the latest remarks made by the men of letters. The popes had been calumniated, inasmuch as they at any rate defended the people, and he called the League the Aurora of Democracy, a great movement in the direction of equality as opposed to the individualism of Protestants. Frederick was a little surprised at these views, they probably bored Sissi, for he changed the conversation to the tableau vivant at the gymnase, which at the time attracted a great number of people. Senecal regarded them with disfavor. Such exhibitions corrupted the daughters of the proletariat. Then, it was noticeable that they went in for a display of shameless luxury. Therefore, he approved of the conduct of the Bavarian students who insulted Lola Monté. In imitation of Rousseau, he showed more esteem for the wife of a coal-porter than for the mistress of a king. "'You don't appreciate dainties,' retorted Ouzonnet in a majestic tone. And he took up the championship of ladies of this class in order to praise Rosanette. Then, as he happened to make an allusion to the ball at her house and to Arnoux's costume, Pellerin remarked, "'People maintain that he is becoming shaky?' The picture-dealer had just been engaged in a lawsuit with reference to his grounds at Belleville, and he was actually in a cowling company in Lower Brittany, with other rogues of the same sort. Dusardier knew more about him, for his own master, Monsieur Mosinot, having made inquiries about Arnoux from the banker, Oscar Lefebvre, the latter had said in reply that he considered him by no means solvent, as he knew of bills of his that had been renewed. The dessert was over, they passed into the drawing-room, which was hung, like that of the Maréchal, in yellow damask in the style of Louis XVI. Pellerin found fault with Frederick for not having chosen in preference the neo-Greek style. Senecal rubbed matches against the hangings. De Laurier did not make any remark. There was a bookcase set up there which he called a little girl's library. The principal contemporary writers were to be found there. It was impossible to speak about their works, for Ouzonnet immediately began relating anecdotes with reference to their personal characteristics, criticizing their faces, their habits, their dress, glorifying fifth-rate intellects, and disparaging those of the first, and all the while making it clear that he deplored modern decadence. He instanced some village ditty as containing in itself alone more poetry than all the lyrics of the 19th century. He went on to say that Balzac was overrated, that Byron was effaced, and that Hugo knew nothing about the stage. Why, then, said Senegal, have you not got the volumes of the working men poets? And Monsieur de Sissi, who devoted his attention to literature, was astonished at not seeing on Frederick's table some of those new physiological studies, the physiology of the smoker, of the angler, of the man employed at the barrier. They went on irritating him to such an extent that he felt a longing to shove them out by the shoulders. 
but they are making me quite stupid and then he drew desarquier aside and wished to know whether he could do him any service the honest fellow was moved he answered that his post of cashier entirely sufficed for his wants after that frederick led de laurier into his own apartment and taking out of his escritoire two thousand francs look here old boy put this money in your pocket tis the balance of my old debts to you but what about the journal said the advocate you are of course aware that i spoke about it to Ouzonnet. and when frederick replied that he was a little short of cash just now the other smiled in a sinister fashion after the liqueurs they drank beer and after beer grog and then they lighted their pipes once more at last they left at five o'clock in the evening and they were walking along at each other's side without speaking when Dusardier broke the silence by saying that frederick had entertained them in excellent style they all agreed with him on that point then Ouzonnet remarked that his luncheon was too heavy senecal found fault with the trivial character of his household arrangements cici took the same view it was absolutely devoid of the proper stamp for my part i think said pelerin he might have had the grace to give me an order for a picture de laurier held his tongue as he had the bank-notes that had been given to him in his breeches pocket frederick was left by himself he was thinking about his friends and it seemed to him as if a huge ditch surrounded with shade separated him from them he had nevertheless held out his hand to them and they had not responded to the sincerity of his heart he recalled to mind what pelerin and dusardier had said about arnon undoubtedly it must be an invention a calumny but why and he had a vision of madame arnaud ruined weeping selling her furniture this idea tormented him all night long next day he presented himself at her house at a loss to find any way of communicating to her what he had heard he asked her as if in casual conversation whether arnaud still held possession of his building grounds at delville yes he has them still he is now i believe a shareholder in a cowling company in Brittany. that's true his earthenware works are going on very well are they not well i suppose so and as he hesitated what is the matter with you you frighten me he told her the story about the renewals she hung down her head and said i thought so in fact arnaud in order to make a good speculation had refused to sell his grounds had borrowed money extensively on them and finding no purchasers had thought of rehabilitating himself by establishing the earthenware manufactory the expense of this had exceeded his calculations she knew nothing more about it he evaded all her questions and declared repeatedly that it was going on very well frederick tried to reassure her these in all probability were mere temporary embarrassments however if he got any information he would impart it to her oh yes will you not said she clasping her two hands with an air of charming supplication so then he had it in his power to be useful to her he was now entering into her existence finding a place in her heart arnaud appeared ha how nice of you to come and take me out to dine frederick was silent on hearing these words arnaud spoke about general topics then informed his wife that he would be returning home very late as he had an appointment with monsieur Audry. at his house why certainly at his house as they went down the stairs he confessed that as the marechal had no engagement at home they were going on a secret pleasure party to the moulin rouge and as he always needed somebody to be the recipient of his outpourings he got frederick to drive him to the door 
In place of entering, he walked about on the footpath, looking up at the windows on the second floor. Suddenly the curtains parted. Ha! Bravo! Père Audry is no longer there. Good evening. Frederick did not know what to think now. From this day forth, Arnoux was still more cordial than before. He invited the young man to dine with his mistress, and ere long Frederick frequented both houses at the same time. Rosanette's abode furnished him with amusement. He used to call there of an evening on his way back from the club or the play. He would take a cup of tea there, or play a game of loto. On Sundays they played charades. Rosanette, more noisy than the rest, made herself conspicuous by funny tricks, such as running on all fours or muffling her head in a cotton cap. In order to watch the passers-by through the window, she had a hat of waxed leather. She smoked chibouks. She sang Tyrolese airs. In the afternoon, to kill time, she cut out flowers and a piece of shints and pasted them against the window panes, smeared her two little dogs with varnish, burned pastilles, or drew cards to tell her fortune. Incapable of resisting a desire, she became infatuated about some trinket which she happened to see, and could not sleep till she had gone and bought it, then bartered it for another, sold costly dresses for little or nothing, lost her jewellery, squandered money, and would have sold her chemise for a stage-box at the theatre. Often she asked Frederick to explain to her some word she came across when reading a book, but did not pay any attention to his answer, for she jumped quickly to another idea, while heaping questions on top of each other. After spasms of gaiety came childish outbursts of rage, or else she sat on the ground, dreaming before the fire with her head down and her hands clasping her knees, more inert than a torpid adder. Without minding it, she made her toilette in his presence, drew on her silk stockings, then washed her face with great splashes of water, throwing back her figure as if she were a shivering naiad, and her laughing white teeth, her sparkling eyes, her beauty, her gaiety, dazzled Frederick, and made his nerves tingle under the lash of desire. Nearly always he found Madame Arnoux teaching her little boy how to read, or standing behind Marthe's chair while she played her scales on the piano. When she was doing a piece of sewing, it was a great source of delight to him to pick up her scissors now and then. In all her movements there was a tranquil majesty. Her little hand seemed made to scatter alms and to wipe away tears, and her voice, naturally rather hollow, had caressing intonations and a sort of breezy lightness. She did not display much enthusiasm about literature, but her intelligence exercised a charm by the use of a few simple and penetrating words. She loved travelling, the sound of the wind in the woods, and a walk with uncovered head under the rain. Frederick listened to these confidences with rapture, fancying that he saw in them the beginning of a certain self-abandonment on her part. His association with these two women made, as it were, two different strains of music in his life, the one playful, passionate, diverting, the other grave and almost religious, and vibrating both at the same time, they always increased in volume and gradually blended with one another. For if Madame Arnoux happened merely to touch him with her finger, the image of the other immediately presented itself to him as an object of desire, because from that quarter a better opportunity was thrown in his way, and when his heart happened to be touched while in Rosanette's company, he was immediately reminded of the woman for whom he felt such a consuming passion. This confusion was in some measure due to a similarity which existed between the interiors of the two houses, 
One of the trunks, which was formerly to be seen in the boulevard Montmartre, now adorned Rosanette's dining room. The same courses were served up for dinner in both places, and even the same velvet cap was to be found trailing over easy chairs. Then a heap of little presents, screens, boxes, fans, went to the mistress's house from the wife's and returned again, for Arthur, without the slightest embarrassment, often took back from the one what he had given to her in order to make a present of it to the other the marechal laughed with frederick at the utter disregard for propriety which his habits exhibited one sunday after dinner she led him behind the door and showed him in the pocket of arnaud's overcoat a bag of cakes which he had just pilfered from the table in order no doubt to regale his little family with it at home monsieur arnaud gave himself up to some rogueries which bordered on vileness it seemed to him a duty to practise fraud with regard to the city dues he never paid when he went to the theatre or if he took a ticket for the second seats always tried to make his way into the first and he used to relate as an excellent joke that it was a custom of his at the cold baths to put into the waiter's collection box a breeches button instead of a ten sous piece and this did not prevent the marechal from loving him one day however she said while talking about him ah he's making himself a nuisance to me at last i've had enough of him faith so much the better i'll find another instead frederick believed that the other had already been found and that his name was monsieur Oudry. well said rosanette what does that signify then in a voice choked with rising tears i ask very little from him however and he won't give me that he had even promised a fourth of his profits in the famous Kaolin mines. No profit made its appearance any more than the cashmere with which he had been luring her on for the last six months. Frederick immediately thought of making her a present. Arnou might regard it as a lesson for himself and be annoyed at it. For all that, he was good-natured. His wife herself said so, but so foolish. Instead of bringing people to dine every day at his house, he now entertained his acquaintances at a restaurant. He bought things that were utterly useless, such as gold chains, timepieces, and household articles. Madame Arnoux even pointed out to Frederick in the lobby an enormous supply of tea kettles, foot warmers, and samovars. Finally, she one day confessed that a certain matter caused her much anxiety. Arnoux had made her sign a promissory note, payable to Monsieur D'Ambreuse. Meanwhile, Frederick still cherished his literary projects as if it were a point of honour with himself to do so. He wished to write a history of aesthetics, a result of his conversations with Pellerin. Next, to write dramas dealing with different epochs of the French Revolution, and to compose a great comedy, an idea traceable to the indirect influence of Delaurier and Ouzonnet. In the midst of his work, her face or that of the other passed before his mental vision. He struggled against the longing to see her, but was not long ere he yielded to it, and he felt sadder as he came back from Madame Arnoux's house. One morning, while he was brooding over his melancholy thoughts by the fireside, de Laurier came in. The incendiary speeches of Senegal had filled his master with uneasiness, and once more he found himself without resources. "'What do you want me to do?' said Frederick. "'Nothing. I know you have no money, but it will not be much trouble for you to get him a post either through Monsieur d'Ambreuse or else through Arnoux. The latter ought to have need of engineers in his establishment. Frederick had an inspiration. If Senegal would be able to let him know when the husband was away, carry letters for him, 
and assist him on a thousand occasions when opportunities presented themselves. Services of this sort are always rendered between man and man. Besides, he would find means of employing him without arousing any suspicion on his part. Chance offered him an auxiliary. It was a circumstance that omened well for the future, and he hastened to take advantage of it, and with an affectation of indifference he replied that the thing was feasible perhaps, and that he would devote attention to it. And he did so at once. Arnu took a great deal of pains with his earthenware works. He was endeavouring to discover the copper red of the Chinese, but his colours evaporated in the process of baking. In order to avoid cracks in his ware, he makes slime with his potter's clay, but the articles got broken for the most part. The enamel of his paintings on the raw material boiled away. His large plates became bulged, and attributing these mischances to the inferior plant of his manufactory, he was anxious to start other grinding mills and other dyeing rooms. Frederick recalled some of these things to mind, and when he met Arnoux, said that he had discovered a very able man who would be capable of finding his famous red. Arnoux gave a jump, then, having listened to what the young man had to tell him, replied that he wanted assistance from nobody. Frederick spoke in a very laudatory style about Senegal's prodigious attainments, pointing out that he was at the same time an engineer, a chemist, and an accountant, being a mathematician of the first rank. The earthenware dealer consented to see him, but they squabbled over the emoluments. Frederick interposed, and, at the end of the week, succeeded in getting them to come to an agreement. But as the works were situated at Creil, Senecal could not assist him in any way. This thought alone was enough to make his courage flag, as if he had met with some misfortune. His notion was that the more Arnoux would be kept apart from his wife, the better would be his own chance with her. Then he proceeded to make repeated apologies for Rosanette. He referred to all the wrongs she had sustained at the other's hands, referred to the vague threats which she had uttered a few days before, and even spoke about the cashmere without concealing the fact that she had accused Arnoux of avarice. Arnoux, nettled at the word, and furthermore feeling some uneasiness, brought Rosanette the cashmere, but scolded her for having made any complaint to Frederick. When she told him that she had reminded him a hundred times of his promise, he pretended that, owing to the pressure of business, he had forgotten all about it. The next day Frederick presented himself at her abode, and found the maréchal still in bed, though it was two o'clock, with Delmar beside her finishing a pâte de foie gras at a little round table. Before he had advanced many paces, she broke out into a cry of delight, saying, "'I have him! I have him!' Then she seized him by the ears, kissed him on the forehead, thanked him effusively, thee'd and thou'd him, and even wanted to make him sit down on the bed. Her fine eyes, full of tender emotion, were sparkling with pleasure. There was a smile on her humid mouth. Her two round arms emerged through the sleeveless opening of her nightdress, and from time to time he could feel through the cambric the well-rounded outlines of her form. All this time Delmar kept rolling his eyeballs about. But really, my dear, my own pet. It was the same way on the occasion when he saw her next. As soon as Frederick entered, she sat up on the cushion in order to embrace him with more ease, called him a darling, a dearie, put a flower in his buttonhole, and settled his cravat. These delicate attentions were redoubled when Dermar happened to be there. Were they advances on her part? So it seemed to Frederick. As for deceiving a friend, Arnoux, in his place, would not have had many scruples on that score, 
and he had every right not to adhere to rigidly virtuous principles with regard to this man's mistress seeing that his relations with his wife had been strictly honourable for so he thought or rather he would have liked arnoux to think so in any event as a sort of justification of his own prodigious cowardice nevertheless he felt somewhat bewildered and presently he made up his mind to lay siege boldly to the marechal so one afternoon just as she was stooping down in front of her chest of drawers he came across to her and repeated his overtures without a pause thereupon she began to cry saying that she was very unfortunate but that people should not despise her on that account he only made fresh advances she now adopted a different plan namely to laugh at his attempts without stopping he thought it a clever thing to answer her sarcasms with repartees in the same strain in which there was even a touch of exaggeration but he made too great a display of gaiety to convince her that he was in earnest and their comradeship was an impediment to any outpouring of serious feeling at last when she said one day in reply to his amorous whispers that she would not take another woman's leavings he answered what other woman ah yes go and meet madame arnoux again for frederick used to talk about her often arnoux on his side had the same mania at last she lost patience at always hearing this woman's praises sung and her insinuation was a kind of revenge frederick resented it however rosanette was beginning to excite his love to an unusual degree sometimes assuming the attitude of a woman of experience she spoke ill of love with a sceptical smile that made him feel inclined to box her ears a quarter of an hour afterwards it was the only thing of any consequence in the world and with her arms crossed over her breast as if she were clasping some one close to her oh yes tis good tis good and her eyelids would quiver in a kind of rapturous swoon it was impossible to understand her to know for instance whether she loved arnoux for she made fun of him and yet seemed jealous of him so likewise with the vatnas whom she would sometimes call a wretch and at other times her best friend in short there was about her entire person even to the very arrangement of her chignon over her head an inexpressible something which seemed like a challenge and he desired her for the satisfaction above all of conquering her and being her master how was he to accomplish this for she often sent him away unceremoniously appearing only for a moment between two doors in order to say in a subdued voice i'm engaged for the evening or else he found her surrounded by a dozen persons and when they were alone so many impediments presented themselves one after the other that one would have sworn there was a bet to keep matters from going any further he invited her to dinner as a rule she declined the invitation on one occasion she accepted it but did not come a machiavellian idea arose in his brain having heard from Duzartier about pelerin's complaints against himself he thought of giving the artist an order to paint the maréchal's portrait a life-sized portrait which would necessitate a good number of sittings he would not fail to be present at all of them the habitual incorrectness of the painter would facilitate their private conversations so then he would urge rosanette to get the picture executed in order to make a present of her face to her dear arnoux she consented for she saw herself in the midst of the grand salon in the most prominent position with a crowd of people staring at her picture and the newspapers would all talk about it which at once would set her afloat as for pelerin he eagerly snatched at the offer this portrait ought to place him in the position of a great man it ought to be a masterpiece he passed in review in his memory all the portraits by great masters with which he was acquainted 
and decided finally in favour of titian which would be set off with ornaments in the style of veronese therefore he would carry out his design without artificial backgrounds in a bold light which would illuminate the flesh tints with a single tone and which would make the accessories glitter suppose i were to put on her he thought a pink silk dress with an oriental bournoum oh no the bournoum is only a rascally thing or suppose rather i were to make her wear blue velvet with a grey background richly coloured we might likewise give her a white guipure collar with a black fan and a scarlet curtain behind and thus seeking for ideas he enlarged his conception and regarded it with admiration he felt his heart beating when rosanette accompanied by frederick called at his house for the first sitting he placed her standing up on a sort of platform in the midst of the apartment and finding fault with the light and expressing regret at the loss of his former studio he made her lean on her elbow against a pedestal then sit down in an armchair and drawing away from her and coming near her again by turns in order to adjust with a fillip the folds of her dress he watched her with eyelids half closed and appealed to frederick's taste with a passing word well no he exclaimed i return to my own idea i will set you up in the venetian style she would have a poppy-coloured velvet gown with a jewelled girdle and her wide sleeve lined with ermine would afford a glimpse of her bare arm which was to touch the balustrade of a staircase rising behind her at her left a large column would mount as far as the top of the canvas to meet certain structures so as to form an arch underneath one would vaguely distinguish groups of orange trees almost black through which the blue sky with its streaks of white cloud would seem cut into fragments on the baluster covered with a carpet there would be on a silver dish a bouquet of flowers a chaplet of amber a poniard and a little chest of antique ivory rather yellow with age which would appear to be disgorging gold sequins some of them falling on the ground here and there would form brilliant splashes as it were in such a way as to direct one's glance towards the tip of her foot for she would be standing on the last step but one in a natural position as if in the act of moving under the glow of the broad sunlight he went to look for a picture-case which he laid on the platform to represent the step then he arranged as accessories on a stool by way of balustrade his pea-jacket a buckler a sardine-box a bundle of pens and a knife and when he had flung in front of rosanette a dozen big sous he made her assume the attitude he required just try to imagine that these things are riches magnificent presents the head a little on one side perfect and don't stir this majestic posture exactly suits your style of beauty she wore a plaid dress and carried a big muff and only kept from laughing outright by an effort of self-control as regards the headdress, we will mingle with it a circle of pearls it always produces a striking effect with red hair the maréchale burst out into an exclamation remarking that she had not red hair nonsense the red of painters is not that of ordinary people he began to sketch the position of the masses and he was so much preoccupied with the great artists of the renaissance that he kept talking about them persistently for a whole hour he went on musing aloud on those splendid lives full of genius glory and sumptuous displays with triumphal entries into the cities and galas by torchlight among half-naked women beautiful as goddesses you were made to live in those days 
a creature of your calibre would have deserved a monseigneur rosanette thought the compliments he paid her very pretty the day was fixed for the next sitting frederick took it on himself to bring the accessories as the heat of the stove had stupefied her a little they went home on foot through the rue de bac and reached the pont royal it was fine weather piercingly bright and warm some windows of houses in the city shone in the distance like plates of gold whilst behind them at the right the turrets of notre dame showed their outlines in black against the blue sky softly bathed at the horizon in grey vapours the wind began to swell and rosanette having declared that she felt hungry they entered the patisserie anglaise young women with their children stood eating in front of the marble buffet where plates of little cakes had glass covers pressed down on them rosanette swallowed two cream tarts the powdered sugar formed moustaches at the sides of her mouth from time to time in order to wipe it she drew out her handkerchief from her muff and her face under her green silk hood resembled a full-blown rose in the midst of its leaves they resumed their walk in the rue de la paix she stood before a goldsmith's shop to look at a bracelet frederick wished to make her a present of it no said she keep your money he was hurt by these words what's the matter now with the ducky we are melancholy and the conversation having been renewed he began making the same protestations of love to her as usual you know well tis impossible why ah because they went on side by side she leaning on his arm and the flounces of her gown kept flapping against his legs then he recalled to mind one winter twilight when on the same footpath madame arnoux walked thus by his side and he became so much absorbed in this recollection that he no longer saw rosanette and did not bestow a thought upon her she kept looking straight before her in a careless fashion lagging a little like a lazy child it was the hour when people had just come back from their promenade and equipage were making their way at a quick trot over the hard pavement pelerin's flatteries having probably recurred to her mind she heaved a sigh ah there are some lucky women in the world decidedly i was made for a rich man he replied with a certain brutality in his tone you have one in the meantime for monsieur Udry was looked upon as a man that could count a million three times over she asked for nothing better than to get free from him what prevents you from doing so and he gave an utterance to bitter jests about this old bewigged citizen pointing out to her that such an intrigue was unworthy of her and that she ought to break it off yes replied the marechale as if talking to herself tis what i shall end by doing no doubt frederick was charmed by this disinterestedness she slackened her pace and he fancied that she was fatigued she obstinately refused to let him take a cab and she parted with him at her door sending him a kiss with her fingertips ah what a pity and to think that imbeciles take me for a man of wealth he reached home in a gloomy frame of mind End of chapter 8, part 1